1: In mid-2020, Beijing imposed a draconian and all-encompassing national security law on the people of Hong Kong. Up until that point, Hong Kongers had sustained a dynamic and confrontational movement for democracy that was not only remarkable for its protests, but for the political support it generated overseas. In the United States, international solidarity exploded. But rather than the traditional repertoire of solidarity that involved carrying placards and holding protests, a new organisation called the Hong Kong Democracy Council, or HKDC, was created to play a critical role in changing the geopolitics of the battle. Today we talk to Samuel Chu, the founder of HKDC. Samuel tells us about his deep history as an organiser and how he brought All of this into the approach he took to building the international solidarity work of the Hong Kong Democracy Council. 2020 is a time not only of pandemics and economic crisis, but a time of rising authoritarianism. In this chat, we explore how the battle for Hong Kong teaches people around the world about how to contest for democracy. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats. Conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So, Samuel... Welcome to Changemakers. I feel like uh, you used to, you've used you worked with me on the show on this side, and now we're interviewing you on as a guest. Welcome.
2: I know. I'm, I'm experiencing a lot of new identities uh, these <laughs> days, so this, this is great. Thank you for having
1: me. <laughs> well, we are, we are thrilled to have you. Uh, partly because we know that you're a longtime organizer in so many different traditions but also because of what you have done in the last year in the United States in support of democracy in Hong Kong but before we get into that big story uh, we I want our uh, listeners to have a sense of of who you are as as a person who makes change in the world so you support Hong Kong as an expat based in uh, Los Angeles in the United States at one of the most uh, difficult times, if not the most critical and terrifying times in Hong Kong's history, but also you're like a long-term organiser and that's certainly how we met both uh, as organisers and and actors in the world of uh, social change, but in particular in the world of um, the Industrial Areas Foundation. How would you describe? The kind of change that you make in the world.
2: Wow. Um, So, that I think is taking a step back. As you mentioned, I think we met uh, through the IAF, and and I think that there is a huge part of the IAF that continues to sort of live and thrive in me. And so, the way I would talk about um, my work is that I am constantly looking at what it means to uh, build. Uh, organizations and movements that has power that they can win and use to uh, to win what it is that matters uh, to them the most, uh, and and I think that you can break it down in, in a variety of ways. I think of uh, international development in that lens of the idea that you know we constantly think of trying to you know send money and, and do development and send funding to foreign countries, but really it's about the exercise and the securing of political rights for indigenous people, and all the way back to domestic to the U.S., where we, you know, constantly have this obsession between charitable responses to social change, electoral, you know, electioneering uh, for change. But really, it's the in between of how are people day to day able to and willing to exercise their political rights, and you know, willing to defend it willing to defend it for other people that they care about and uh, willing to to risk to exercise it when it seems to be risky or dangerous or even suppressed uh, and and oppressed uh, uh, situation. And I think that that's kind of how I see, at the end of the day, it's about a person's agency and and a community's sense of power and the ability of a movement to uh, translate uh, what they want into into something that is uh, political
1: yeah and so you have I mean this uh, it's almost like you've you've been on a, a journey I, I feel like you know for seeking out seeking out seeking out what makes change how to create this space for the defense of our day-to-day rights right through d- lots of different movements what we w- what I want to sh- have you share with our listeners is so so why why did you choose that as a, as a vocation Samuel? Like lots of people choose, um, much more straightforward and simple lives, but you have chosen something, uh, that is hard and sometimes dangerous and certainly courageous. Like what, what drew you to this kind of work, this kind of life?
2: So I think that, you know, obviously I was deeply influenced by uh, my training with the Industrial Air Foundations. And, and I think that the, the the most important understanding I gained from that involvement and engagement over the years has been this idea of, you know, what it means to uh, to not do for others what they can do for themselves. And and it's not this, you know, we call it the iron rule, you know. Uh, and, and I don't think that it's, you know, I, I've obviously, you know, have practice and and looked at the implication of that in various contexts. You know, it's not uh, a a dead rule where, you know, you just uh, constantly, you know, it's not 100% foul proof. But I do think that in my understanding, in my view, I've chosen this particular uh, way of creating change because just look at, I think, American civic culture and politics now is that I I think early on in my career really came to understand that we have defined you know, politics, civic life, civic culture, social change, and, and social justice too narrowly. Uh, and that we have skewed towards the, toward the extreme of we got to vote for the candidate who is going to bring about every change that we ever wanted. And on the opposite end is that we got to do this anonymous million people, uh, one-off, you know, uh, marches and protests to uh, to go viral and and be sort of on social media and be, capture people's you know imaginations. and really the blank the void in between those two extreme is where I really believe was missing. and, and that I think that's where the ingredients of a healthy democracy and an equitable society and, and any sort of justice and equity is going to come from is the in between of the extreme. Vote for this one person is going to save the world, which create a sort of cult of personalities that we're sort of trapped in versus this, you know, this Saturday, a million people who never met each other are going to come together and then they're going to go back to their lives on Monday. And but the day to day of um, everything from uh, the conversation we have with people who disagrees with us, who agrees with us, learning how to organize to, to get something uh, done at a city council or a school board, all the way to uh, cultivating the right people with the right political you know biography that can represent people in these elected offices. You know, it goes beyond that just voting for someone or even phone banking for someone. It's about identifying the kind of political and public leadership that you want to see. And and that so for me that was really what I came down to is that I recognized early on that the in between that vastness is what's been missing. And it's an area that nobody seems to really focus on. You know, you have people who make tons and tons of money in politics who run you know campaigns, you have people who spend so much of their time organizing protests and, and you know and marches and, and rallies and, and things, but to invest my, all the talent and everything I have into cultivating and building this politics in the middle, in between these extremes is where I think I've chosen early on to, to, to invest myself.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I then want to ask another question about, so there's an anchor for you in the Industrial Areas Foundation and broad-based community organizing an extraordinary global movement for localized change. But then there's also Hong Kong. Tell me how the fact that you were born in Hong Kong, I know you're a US citizen now, but that you are born in Hong Kong and that you have these this uh, love of, of that place, how does that also um, create your political sense of the world, who you are as a political person?
2: Well, I think that there's two, I think, elements. On, on one level, I think the connection is, is- Fairly you know public and obvious, you know my family has always been at the front hand at the front of this movement. My father was part of the organizing that um, you know in tenement square and he was part of your program last year uh, you know and and being not just supportive of the student protests in 89, but also built the underground railroad that smuggled all the dissidents out. And I think he also spoke in that same program about what drove him as a minister looking at his community and his neighborhood and wanting to understand that the question he should be asking is not what's good for you know, God or what's good for me, but what are the issues that are faced by the community that comes to this church and that we ought to be taking the responsibility of tackling those things. And so I think that there is sort of this one level of like this has always been the way that I was taught to look at Hong Kong, to look at my neighborhood, to look at my community, and to look at my obligations to the broader world in that sense. But I think as I got deeper into the work of organizing, as I got myself sort of in some way extracted you know, from my firsthand experience in Hong Kong and then learned to do this work in the US, I think a deeper level also emerged, which is that I began to realize that Hong Kong has never been a free city. I understood that my understanding of how power works begin from the very early age of being in Hong Kong in a colonial state uh, where British you know, rule you know, for 100, almost 100 years. And every person that I've ever come into contact with when I was growing up who possessed any kind of authority and power was looked different from me and spoke a different language and was white. And I grew up in a church, a Southern Baptist church. And I think that I've talked a lot about this where, you know, I never knew why we were Southern Baptist. We just thought that we were in a Southern part of China. And so we thought that, you know, that was why we were Southern. But obviously it's not because Southern Baptist, it's it's another cultural institution that has been essentially another colonization through religion in a foreign country in Hong Kong. And these ideas of the fact that I grew up in a place yearning to be free today, that has never been free. And I think that that began to really set another deeper layer of my foundation of thinking about the current and the past and the future of Hong Kong. Because it's no longer just about what I had always sort of experienced on the surface, you know, being there with my dad, being at the front end of the protest and being there on the ground, even... Knowing sort of the, the 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 deepest, clearest aspiration of the protesters throughout the last 20 years. But really at the end of the day, you know, the struggle that we're confronting is that how do we create a people that is free if they have never experienced if they've actually never been free? And how do we get away from this you know idea of we're going to somehow be rescued or saved by another, you know, colonizer or by another uh, outside force in a way that um, I think just perpetuate the kind of uh, same struggle that we we have always had. So I think that my understanding, I think my feelings about Hong Kong has evolved and deepened uh, as my work yeah, has my expanded.
1: Of course. And... Let's talk a bit about some of these dynamics because I under I, you know appreciate how complicated they are. But first off, I really would like you know we've seen what happened with the the national security law that was. Um, delivered uh in secret uh to the, the Hong Kong people. Can you explain, just for context as much as anything else, for listeners who are not fully across it, can you explain what happened with the national security law and and I guess what started to happen since? Like what what does this mean?
2: Yeah, so I mean I think many of uh, your listeners would know that I mean the protest has been going on now for ongoing, you know, 15 months and, and going. And I'm really this is a continuation of a much longer arc of protests that has been happening. So since the handover, so in 1984, uh, the British and Chinese government signed an agreement and also witnessed and and ratified by other countries and by the UN that Hong Kong was gonna have this handover back from British rule to Chinese rule. But because Hong Kong has, has become such a global city under British rules, that Hong Kong would get to maintain its autonomy and civil rights and human rights and basic law and have its own constitution for another 50 years until 2047. But I think it was clear right off the bat in 1997 when the handover happened that China really did not have any intent on honoring that agreement. I think that in 2003 was really the first time where the Hong Kong government, uh, I think under the direction of Beijing, tried to implement some kind of a national security legislation. And what it really is, is that it's not what we think of it as national security. It's not like there's you know, external terrorist groups or some kind of national defense you know, mechanism. It's really a way of policing people's free speech, opinions, and thoughts at any opposition and dissent that are occurring among your own populations. And this is the same kind of policing that happened in Tiananmen Square that led to the massacre. It's what has been happening every day since '89 and June 4th in China. And actually in 2003, half a million Hong Kongers took to the street to immediately protest against this implementation, this proposed idea. And the government in Hong Kong just shelved it and decided we're not going to do that because Hong Kongers seem to be against it. And then in all the subsequent debate and, and protest you know, leading up to this past year, you see the same dynamic of not just, you know, um, there have been uh, other kind of national security-ish legislation that has been proposed. And every time it has been proposed, may it be an education for K through 12 and talking about patriotic education to completely shelving the open election political reform that was supposed to be promised to the people of Hong Kong that led to 2014, an umbrella last year right at the end of the trial where my father and eight others were uh, on trial for the 2014 role in the umbrella movement in Occupy Central, during that time, the Hong Kong government actually came out with another proposal to say that we are now going to consider an extradition treaty with China, whereas that we are able to actually allow Chinese government to extradite anyone that it want to who are in Hong Kong? Who have been arrested or charged in Hong Kong? Who violates, you know, any of the laws to be extradited and tried in China? And that really was what sparked this most recent protest. And then fast forward, as the movement had continued and persisted, I think it became very threatening for China to begin to realize that if Hong Kong continues to be at this place of resistance. Not just publicly, but globally, like they have been, like we have been for the last year and a half now, that threatens China's complete control and all the other region within the mainland. And so, at the same time, what we have done and what I have been able to be a part of in the past year is that we created now, not just in Hong Kong, a resilient protest movement, but we have been able to build an international global front line of real policy influence and political power in the U.S., in the U.K., in the E.U., particularly in the U.S., because we've been able to actually shape U.S. policy and implement them. And to a degree where in May... The Chinese government decided that, you know, enough is enough of this threat to their complete control, that they announced that they were going to propose their own national security law for Hong Kong, that they're going to bypass the Hong Kong legislature, which violates and breaks the Hong Kong constitutions, and they're going to go ahead and draft it, vote on it, and enforce and implement it without ever making it public to anybody. And so they announced the intention in May. A draft was voted on almost unanimously. Uh, there was one vote against it in the June vote, and the guy later said that um, watching for at first when we saw that there was one vote against, uh, we were very concerned about the safety of that person. It turns out that um, he said afterward that he vote he pushed All the right. wrong button, <laughs> and so. And so in June, they passed it, except that they passed the whole thing without ever anybody in Hong Kong reading it, with the exception of the one person who was part of that meeting. And it wasn't until on June 30th, the last day of June, about an hour before midnight, an hour before the anniversary of the handover on July 1st, that they posted the full text in Chinese on the Hong Kong government website and said that this goes into effect right now. And what is in the law essentially is a number of very important, hotly protested issues through the years. It included the uh, language in the 2003 failed proposal. Where they claim that any speech or actions and activities against you know that lead to successions or uh, against the party will be considered seditions, and that any kind of working activities with foreign governments uh, to speak about Hong Kong or to uh, talk about uh, negatively about the Communist Party will be deemed as a terror an act of terror. Uh, as and and it included also mechanism like the extraditions that didn't pass this past year because of the protests, now they say that if you are found to be guilty in complex cases, particularly if you are colluding with foreign power, you could be actually charged, arrested, and then extradited so that you would actually be tried in the mainland, under the mainland judicial system, and then actually be sentenced under that system. And so all of these things, they essentially build up all the you know, laundry list of every suppression and crackdown method they have ever used and tried in mainland and tried it in Hong Kong to implement in Hong Kong. And threw it all in what is called the national security law, in addition to defining these offenses of you know, succession, sedition and terrorism, and this idea of extradition to China for those who are uh, major offenders... They included a few other things that were particularly egregious. One is that they said that in Hong Kong, even if you're not extradited, we are handpicking the judges, a secret group of them, that are able to actually hear these cases. You're not granted bail unless you can prove that you will not continue to commit their alleged offense. And that for major offenses in my case, for example, in colluding what is, they allege me as colluding with foreign powers in succession of Hong Kong, it is punishable at minimum 10 years, but up to life in prison. But to make it even further, they established an agency, a national security office right in Hong Kong that is directly, directly connected and managed by Beijing so that they can actually investigate these cases and these people like me without ever having any transparency or accountability from the Hong Kong government or the, the public. And so that leads to then the final sort of um, best uh, hide, you know, my, uh, the, the, my favorite part of the whole law, which is Article 38, which basically says that anybody who commits these acts, even if they're not a resident of Hong Kong, are guilty, even if they're not in Hong Kong, which is the authority that they used last month and uh, back in July, uh, on the July 31st, to then issue arrest warrant for me and American citizens lobbying and advocating my own government on U.S. soil, doing what is constitutionally my right under the national security law. They are alleging that I have violated NL, NSL and now I'm wanted um in Hong Kong, and by Hong Kong government. And since the you know, uh, implementation, I'm not the only person who's been targeted. On the very first day, the, the, uh, there have been protesters who has been arrested for wearing t-shirts with protest slogans. There was a 19-year-old kid who was arrested for having a sticker on his phone case on the back of his phone that says the word conscience in Chinese. It doesn't even actually directly say anything about the, con, uh, the protests. The first very formal charges was made against a guy who was riding on his motorcycle with a flag that says the slogan, liberate Hong Kong revolution of our time, which has in itself been banned uh, in public. They have been used now to arrest four local activists who are teenagers, essentially for their social media posting. And then a week after that, the law was used to essentially disqualify a number of 12 pro-democracy candidates in the what was supposed to be a LegCo election this past weekend. And then the same week that I, Westworld, was issued, the government postponed the LegCo election. And then the week after, they used the NSL to go after Jimmy Lai, who is the head and founder of the largest opposition media in Hong Kong, and 200 officers actually raided the newsroom while they took him into custody. And so they have basically been implementing using each and every part of this NSL since July 1st to essentially target and crack down on every form of dissent and opposition in Hong Kong, online, on foreign soil, by media organizations, by individuals, by civic society groups, and even just everyday people walking down the street in possession of some kind of what they deem to be terrorist uh, slogan uh, are getting harassed and, and arrested and detained. And so that's what's been happening now in Hong Kong under this new national security. Well,
1: it's I sort of want to ask you to uh, sort of what effect this has been having on a bunch of people. And I think we need to start with you, Samuel. So, you know, for the last year, you have been a leader of an international solidarity movement, primarily working in the United States, but, you know, I imagine helping in a people in other places too, but primarily as a US citizen lobbying your government to do a better job in relation to how it looks at and uh, supports human rights in other countries. People probably don't know that much of that story, and you were very modest in your description of what happened. I mean, you passed a piece of legislation through the Congress and was signed by the president in this context, <laughs> which is not, no easy feat. Why don't you? Can you just tell people a little bit about about what happened and? First, yeah, T- tell us a little bit about about the work that you did. You know, like everyone's familiar with the protests, right? They're on everyone's television screen every day for months, um, the height of the protests uh, in the second half of last year. Tell our listeners a little bit about this second piece of work that went on that they might not be aware of.
2: So I, I think that, you know, and you and I were both in Hong Kong in July uh, last year, and, and and I think that I, I would say this, I think that I, I still want to start by giving credit. I think that the protests on the ground uh, what uh, none of what we have been able to do overseas, and particularly in the U.S., would have been possible if the people of Hong Kong didn't stay on the street and stayed resilient in a face of very brutal and violent crackdown beyond sort of the initial few months. Uh, because, you know, after the 2 million people march, everybody was jazzed and energized and got all the front-page coverage. But if they had just gone home, then there would not have been you know, HKDC or any of the work that we have done in the U.S. because their commitment to stay out on, on the street and, and, and stay on uh, the case, I think is what allowed us to then do uh, what you are just describing. A year ago, I think that was the first time uh, you know, I came back to the, to the U.S. in, in August and, and met with, I think, both folks in Hong Kong after in July and then came back to, to meet with folks in the U.S., And what became clear to me is what I see so often in organizing here in the U.S. and I think anywhere domestically is that there's so much energy, chaotic energy, you know, of the protests. You know, people are excited. They want to do something. They want to, you know, sign up for something, except that that energy is extremely difficult to harness and and translate. But I saw an opportunity last summer that we needed to go beyond the protests and move from protests to politics or there will not be any long-term support and solution to the crisis. And what I meant by that is that, you know, I'm not the first person uh, who immigrated from Hong Kong to the U.S. I'm not the first U.S. Hong Kongers to express support for Hong Kong. There are many rallies and protests that happens all the time. But what was happening was that there was no actual organization in the political base that was taking and harnessing the political energy and putting them into something that actually translates into political power and actual concrete policy that has teeth. And so the and, you know analogy or metaphor that I usually use, and actually it's kind of a literal metaphor, is that you know in years past people would in the U.S. would say we support Hong Kong, so they go protest and stand outside the U.S. Capitol and hold up a sign that says "Stand with Hong Kong," but that, that's it. Like that's the symbolic move that we have. Last year, what we did is we decided that instead of standing outside the US Capitol with the sign and the posters, we're going inside to actually write the legislation and write the laws, push for the sanctions, implement the actual policy, and actually get the administration to do what we want them to do. And so this movement from protest to politics is, you know, what it looks like is that we, for the first time, didn't just you know show up. In DC when the newspapers and the news headline was on Hong Kong. We took advantage of those moments, and we say that we're going to grind this one out. We're going to go build relationships with legislators. We're going to build relationships with staffers all around Capitol Hill. The Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which was our first and foremost priority when HKDC was formed, it has actually been introduced post-2014. It has been introduced four different times and has never gotten any movement, not even a hearing and a markup. And that was because that there was all of this noise, but no actual political power behind it. What we were able to do last year is that we said, you know what, talk is cheap and enough of the solidarity stuff. If you're gonna do that, if you say you support Hong Kong, here is how you can do this. We have a me- vehicle, a bill here, and we're going to move this, and you're going to work with us on this. And the idea that we were able to not only pass the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, uh, we helped pass the, the Protect Hong Kong Act, which banned uh, export of uh, crowd control and uh, you know tear gas and other things uh, export to Hong Kong police. We subsequently have also passed uh, the Hong Kong Autonomy Act, um, and we have essentially passed a whole slate a major historic legislation of U.S. policies in Hong Kong and China, uh, because we really transformed ourselves from a group of protesters on the front page of newspaper to a political player inside Capitol Hill, and that we were able to really articulate policy solutions, our interests, as U.S.-Hong Kongers, of what we want to see the U.S. to do. And in the midst of that, you know, I, I think that it's, it's difficult for sometimes people to realize, I was just getting a uh, having a conversation today, um, the U.S.-Belarus community somehow found my phone number and said, can we talk to you? They're like, we just want to know how do we support a movement back home in Belarus, and how do we build support in the U.S., not just to get them to, you know, give us a quote or post on Twitter, but I think that this is what has happened, is that we have fully embraced and turned, I think, you know, sort of this global inspiring protest movement and moment, you know, quite frankly, you know, in time, to then use the energy and the attention it got and the political capital that it was generating to then invest it to harness it into an organization, uh, in our case called Hong Kong Democracy Council, HKDC, which then became sort of the transformer that you know took this raw energy and said that we have these four legislation that we actually passed. We actually introduced 16 different pieces of legislation this past year since we founded. We've held hearing in Congress. We've actually done meetings, you know, more meetings in the last year in Congress than we have in the last 20 years combined. And we've generated, you know, six, 700 pieces of media hit that is constantly drumming and educating people and creating this whole perception and identity. So at the end of the day, I think what has happened, and I think that you cannot have any more validation. I appreciate your um, validation of kind of the success we've had. But I saw the arrest warrant issue for me, really, I think, by extension to HKDC on July 31st, as sort of the ultimate validation of how successful we have been. Uh, Because, you know, so often in advocacy and organizing, we're trying to respond to something that's bad. You know, somebody proposed a law that we don't like that is totally outrageous and unjust, and then we go and, like, evolve and figure out a plan to respond and counter it. In this case, I think what happened is that the protest broke out, we built an international front line and, and politics and, and sort of political vehicle. And I think that it got to the CCP and the Hong Kong government so much so that they created a vehicle to come after us. And I remember when the national security law was first announced and then implemented and made public, our lawyers here in D.C. in the U.S. was like, I mean, you know, he's not from Hong Kong, he was just you know a legal counsel for us and and he read the national security law, and he said to me, he called me on the phone, and he said, Samuel, <laughs> did they write this law for you? And I was just, you know, I, was, I thought he was joking, and I was like, well, I mean, you know, probably not. I mean, I didn't think that we were that important. But, you know, four weeks later, it became clear that we actually were so successful that we actually did spur an authoritarian regime to draft and create a new policy just to come after us because we were doing something that they didn't like. And I would say that that's probably the most, um, (laughs) you know, the best, highest form of (laughs) validation. Well, as we
1: know in organizing, we always say every action has a reaction, which is a form of recognition, (laughs) and this was yours, right?
2: (laughs) Exactly. But you know, it's so weird for us because we constantly think about actual reaction as something that we do and then we get a reaction as in like, you know, um we're getting someone to respond to what we're doing. But not in a but not in a scale, not in a scale of this type. You know, we're usually used to seeing one politician or one body of legislature doing this, but I have never had a whole regime yeah. react the way that we, um, you know, to our actions. So I, that is uh, that is kind of uh, amazing. But but I think, again, I would say one more thing about kind of what we have accomplished, because I think that this is the most important. And this goes back to the original question about how I see change, is that we have done this not because I, you know, have somehow superpower or I'm super rich or I have so, all these connections, HKDC have been able to do this because we have created a force, an army of U.S. Hong Kongers who have learned how to do this as everyday ordinary citizens and people in the U.S. And that, I think, is ultimately what I think can make this so much more uh, powerful and sustainable, is that we have only been successful, A, because of the resiliency of the protest movement in Hong Kong. Two, because we believe and embody this idea of moving from protest to politics and actually harnessing that power. But three, it's because they can come after me, but that's meaningless because I'm just one person. I'm an organizer. I'm not the face of the movement. They have tried to make me the face of the movement, but they can arrest me. They can actually come and kidnap me if they want to. But at the end of the day, there are 1,500 other Hong Kongers, 3,000 other Hong Kongers who will do the exact same work that I'm doing and probably do it better when I'm gone. And I think that that's the part of this story that is so remarkable is that it's not that, you know, a lot of people are talking about how this is leaderless. The way I would think about it is that there are many, many leaders in this movement. And I think that that has become the back, you know, foundation, the, the, the backbone of this is that you can't break us because you can cut off the head. You know, Samuel can, can be erased, but then there are 15 other Samuel who can sprung up doing just the same things. And I think that that kind of uh, replicable, um, you know, power uh, it, it is what has made this past year so remarkable.
1: I I actually wonder if one of the other, I mean, that is so amazing that the Belarus community has reached out to you. I feel like that speaks to what I want to ask as one of my last questions, which is, I feel like when what you're doing in this contest, this geopolitical contest, as well as this contest around your home, that we're learning lessons about how to contest authoritarianism globally, that there's something in, and you could, put it in the history of colonialism that you talked about right at the start, you know, what China or the CCP, what the Beijing officials are doing to Hong Kong is a a colonial exercise. Again, a a different one, but another one in Hong Kong's history. And authoritarian government is also not exclusive to Beijing. You know, there's plenty of authoritarian pushes all around the world, arguably also in your place, Samuel.
2: (laughs) I mean, it's it's more fashionable It's more fashionable in 2020 oh. to be a, a dictator
1: than it oh, is. In, they've um, all just come out, out of the woodwork, haven't they? It's quite. Astounding, But I wonder if you're uh, – just have you thought about – I feel like this international solidarity piece is likely one strong localised protest sounds like another, but do you see any broader lessons about how from this battle, for this battleground that you've you've played such a an interesting role inside of, about how we contest authoritarianism, how we fight back for democracy in this moment and going forward?
2: Well, I, I think, and this I think goes back to our you know, shared roots in, in organizing,
1: I think that I have been more
2: convinced than ever that bringing about the awareness, the hunger, the thirst, the appetite for political power and political rights for each and every person is more important than ever, particularly in an authoritarian setting. Right. People think of it as that we got to have this, you know, like equal force, you know, that if there's a authoritarian regime, we got to have the military force or this massive, you know, institutional force to be able to counter. Yes, like those are some options. But if you think about the movement in Hong Kong, it is a movement that is sustained by constant creative sometimes in small groups, sometimes as small as an individual, but linked together, sort of day-to-day, daily acts of resistance. It's it's this awareness of, you don't let me wear the T-shirt with the slogan, I will wear a T-shirt with the abstract version of the slogan. You won't let us say the protest slogan out loud or point it on paper, we will hold up a white piece of paper. Because now what you're seeing is that the reason why the movement in Hong Kong has not died down and that the Chinese government had such a hard time crushing it, it's because it has not been now limited to just one legislation, one proposal, or one issue. It is now a broad movement-wide awakening that we are not going to be suppressed and silenced no matter what it is you're trying to do. And so to put it like I think to put it in another way, I think, as you said, I think that the global solidarity I think is, is one piece. I think that the ability to for people-centered movement and people-led movement to drive politics and geopolitics, this is a new frontier, and I think that it is happening. It is happening not just in Hong Kong, it's happening everywhere. But secondly, is that what you're seeing in Hong Kong. It's this very creative movement back and forth, like I described here in the U.S., of moving from protests to politics, to international politics, back to protests, back to international politics, back to local politics. And it's this sort of fluency among those that I think we have been able to now create and put into play that I think didn't exist before. Tenement Square, I think, you know, 30-some years ago, was, a I think, a clear example of the protest politics that people wanted and saw that maybe if we had a million people that they would listen and they would be able to to, to, to counter the authoritarian regime. We saw that in Hong Kong. Maybe two million people would do. But I think it was clear that that is not because that two million people didn't work. Two million people needed to be one piece of the solution. And now what I think we're now... We're entering into is this moving back and forth the fluency between protest tactics we saw yesterday um, in the, or, or, or yeah in what was supposed to be the let election in Hong Kong people coming back to the streets, almost three hundred protesters were arrested uh, because now it is actually illegal to basically protest in any form in Hong Kong that will continue to happen that will continue to take place. And the defiance that each of those who are arrested as they go through the legal process, as they fight like my dad and the others did in years past, to say the you know, to testify, to give witness to what they're protesting and to the uh, unjust you know aspect of the law, those are all part of the protest formula. We are continuing to move to geopolitics, not just in US politics, we're targeting the UN, we're targeting Aligned, coordinated sanctions with EU and UK. We're talking about, you know, figuring out how the Olympics in 2022 is going to play into this whole China uh, discussion. But really, what is also happening is that this individual, collective defiance is now being permeated and taught and indoctrinated, or as a term that I think is apt for our time. It's that we're vaccinating as many people as possible against just going along with authoritarian rules. So you think about what has happened in Hong Kong and the impact it already has, not just on the protests and the anti-national you know, security law, but in the way that the city has responded to the pandemic. They have rise up medical professionals, social workers, everyday citizens, labor unions have come out and say that you are not acting in the interests of the people of Hong Kong. And they're saying to the Hong Kong government that that is no longer acceptable. So you're seeing this permeation, this sort of radical democ- you know, democracy education that is using and, and, and going through on one end the protests of media, global solidarity, all of these things, what it is building really when it comes down to, at the end of the day, is where we started. It's this awakening. It's this hunger. It's this shared, connected, collective political power and political rights that people are living and embodying. And when that is a constant driver behind whatever action you're taking and that is your reaction to every attempt of authoritarian oppression and suppression in every part of your life that's what drives ultimately the successful resisting and overcoming of authoritarianism and i think that that is also what drives democracy and i think as you said red reference and you know hinted that's what we're seeing in the us now is that this you know, the, the, the standing up and rising up against all forms of oppression at every turn of American life is hopefully what is going to shape and drive the election and political landscape in the next few months. And I believe that that is central not only against authoritarianism, I think that is central in the survival of democracy.
1: Yeah, and the power I hear in what you're saying is even if the worst thing happens in the election, those people rising up in defiance is still present. The drumbeat of democracy is still there.
2: And that is, I mean, the, the, the thing that I think gives me, you know, again, I think it's, it's always hard. This is a dark moment. I think I would say, and most would agree, that Hong Kong, the Hong Kong that I grew up in, that I was born in, that I love and, and cherish is no longer today. But I believe that it will be Hong Kong and it will be free again uh, one day.
1: Yeah, I, I believe you. And I, I, cons- I was there seeing with you, seeing the struggle on the street and I watched the struggle around the world and I don't doubt it for a second. Thank you so much for being with us, Samuel. Thank you for sharing such extraordinary wisdom with everyone today. Thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating, and our audio producer is Jules Wookera. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. We have a weekly training program called the Changemakers Organising School, a great place for anyone to drop in or come in every week for training about all things community organising. All the details and registration